Could you imagine a feeling of nothingness? Just complete stillness and emptiness. You don't feel anything particular that can be described as having an experience. You're not sad, not happy, not resentful, not motivated or inspired. You're simply there in the present moment with no thoughts running through your head, no future plans you're gonna do, no anxieties about the past, no attachments, just it. What is this it? What it is. What I'm talking about is the core essence of existence itself. What's it like to be anything and to experience something? It's consciousness. There are many definitions as to what consciousness is, why do we possess it and how it expresses itself. What is consciousness? I'm definitely not qualified enough to tell you that, but I've done some research and I've had a few experiences about the nature of this thing that literally creates reality itself. Most of my inquiry focuses on meditation and that's what we'll be talking about in today's Body, Mind and Power and Podcast. I'm your host, Seem Lund. You might not have known this about me, but I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology, which is the study of humans and human cultures. My thesis was called Body-Mind Dualism and the Nature of Consciousness in Transcendental Meditation. I did fieldwork with a group of meditators in Estonia who had been practicing for decades. In this episode, we're gonna go into some of the most profound concepts and ideas I got during my study and some of the revelations I experienced. I have to warn you, this episode is gonna be quite dense and filled with scientific as well as spiritual jargon. I must also say that I'm no expert in this topic and I know nothing about it. Just a newbie, so there's probably a lot of things that need to be reinterpreted. Nevertheless, I feel confident in sharing some of the main ideas. If you want to support this podcast, then make sure you leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe, hit like, all those social media shares, because it's the least you can do to spread the messages. But for now, let's delve into the topic that gives meaning to everything else, because without it, nothing would even exist. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. I'm just going to start off by reading the introduction of my thesis, The Mind-Body Problem. I first came into contact with meditation when I just graduated from high school. Of course, I had heard about it previously, but it always remained to be this mystical and weird thing. Something only yogis and spiritual people would practice. To be honest, my initial interest for trying it out came from the selfish desire of improving my mental performance. To sharpen the blade that we call the mind. The inner machinations of my mind are an enigma. It worked. I was able to enhance my focus in life, the ability to concentrate for many hours and be more in control of my own behavior. As I continued my practice, I never had the intention of progressing further with it. There are many stories and ideas about topics such as enlightenments, awakenings and other epiphanies, but only a few can actually tell what they all mean. I do not claim to be enlightened because, in my opinion, any claims of the like would immediately falsify me as a fraud. That's why, throughout this thesis, I take the Socratic position of I know nothing. 
Despite that, I still had several strange occasions while meditating, wherein it seems as if I enter an altered state of consciousness. Although I'm completely awake and aware, both my body and mind feel at one instance estranged from me and at others fully united. In search of getting at least some explanations, I had decided to do my research on this topic. Let me tell you why you're here. The underlying conflict and tension of this thesis and my meditation experiences involves the notion of body-mind dualism. It was René Descartes in the end of the 17th century who notoriously brought it to surface as it exists in science today by saying, I think, therefore I am. The mind-body problem is the problem of explaining how mental states, events and processes like beliefs, actions and thinking are related to the physical states, given that the human body is a physical entity and the mind is non-physical, or the relationship between these two worlds of body and mind. Cartesian dualism takes the position that mental phenomena are, are non-physical, or that the body and mind are distinctive from one another, with the latter existing separately from the former. An anthropological account on the mind-body problem represents more the view of embodiment. Such an approach stems from the school of phenomenology, pioneered by the philosophers Edmund Husserl and Maurice Merleau-Ponty, the latter of whom wrote that, quote, the body is the vehicle of being in the world, and having a body is, for a living creature, to be involved in a definite environment, to identify oneself with certain projects and be continually committed to them. Phenomenologists take the position that consciousness originates from the body and is the body projecting itself into the world. Individuality can never be understood as long as the world is made into an object, because both universality and the world lie at the subject's core. It's realized only, quote, if the world is the field of our experience, and if we are nothing else but a view of the world. Therefore, it can be thought that an individual's consciousness is never an individual thing, standing distinct from the world and culture. I found much inspiration and assistance from a phenomenological approach, so, which is why I decided to include it in my research. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Moving on, the difficult problem of consciousness. There have been many scientific inquiries on the topic of consciousness, but so far no consensus has been reached. The philosopher John Searle has a common sense definition of consciousness, which goes like this. People always say consciousness is very hard to define. I think it's rather easy to define if you're not trying to give a scientific definition. We're not ready for a scientific definition, but here's a common sense definition. Consciousness consists of all those states of feeling or sentience or awareness. It begins in the morning when you wake up from a dreamless sleep and it goes on all day till you fall asleep or die or otherwise become unconscious. Dreams are a form of consciousness on this definition. All of our conscious states without exception are caused by lower level neurobiological processes in the brain and they are realized in the brain as higher level or system features. But this doesn't give us answers about why and how we have phenomenal experiences. The most influential thought experiment about consciousness is that of Thomas Nagel. He wrote a paper in 1974 called What's it like to be a bat? He argued that, quote, an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there's something that it is like to be that organism, 
something it is like for the organism to be itself, end quote. He uses bats to explain his thesis because their mammals and their sonar system is similar to the human sense of vision. Although it would be possible for us to imagine what it would be like to fly, to navigate around the environment, to hang upside down, Nagel still suggests that it's still impossible for humans to truly understand what's it like to be a bat, because your human consciousness wouldn't have been wired to be that of a bat from birth. You would be a bat man, a man with the body of a bat, but the consciousness and perspective of a human. What is true about Nagel's hypothesis is that the only unquestionable fact of our experience is our own mental activity, which means that we can only know what's it like to be ourselves. The nature of consciousness is consciousness, to be conscious. But still, what I discovered during my fieldwork was that at least the practitioners of Transcendental Meditation, they have created a conditional viewpoint of consciousness as a field. Here's what one of them said. Mathematics approaches all phenomena through distances and quantifying temporality and spatiality. Therefore, consciousness can be viewed conditionally as a field, which comprises everything and from which everything is made of. It is thus situated nowhere. This coincides with quantum theory, in which the structure of the universe is looked upon as based on events, not purely substance or matter. Each of these events inject knowledge into a physical system that bears information. The quantum universe is information-based, as opposed to the purely material one of classical physics. Individual entities are micro-local quantum fields amidst a much bigger field that interact with their neighbors. Damn! That's some quantum shit right there! In anthropological ethnography, Robert Kapferer holds a similar idea. He says, Consciousness arises in a world of other conscious human beings who participate in the process of consciousness of any particular human being. End quote. Consciousness takes form in an intentional body, a body directed and oriented towards the horizons of its life world. Consciousness, in other words, while embodied, nonetheless extends beyond its physical confines into the world which is fundamentally and inseparably part of the dimensionality of consciousness. What is it then? The terms that I use so far all look at the phenomenon in some way or the other, but to explain the phenomenological aspect of consciousness or what's it like to be something, I will be drawing analogies from other fields that are not solely commonsensical but also correspond with a hypothetical theory of consciousness as a field. Physicist Michio Kaku gives a space-time theoretical description of consciousness. Well, I'm a physicist, and when we physicists look at a mysterious object, the first thing we try to do is to create a model, a model of this object in space. And then we hit the play button and run it forward in time. This is how Newton was able to come up with the theory of gravity. This is how Einstein came up with relativity. So I tried to use this in terms of the human brain and evolution. So what I'm saying is I have a new theory of consciousness based on evolution. And that is, consciousness is the number of feedback loops required to create a model of your position in space with relationship to other organisms 
And finally, in relationship to time. Feedback loops are processes of cause and effect between two parts that interact and are connected with each other. So think of the consciousness of a thermostat. I believe that even a lowly thermostat has one unit of consciousness. That is, it senses the temperature around it. And then we have a flower. A flower has maybe, maybe 10 units of consciousness. It has to understand uh, the temperature, the weather, humidity, where gravity is pointing. And then finally we go to the reptilian brain, which I call level one consciousness. And reptiles basically have a very good understanding of their position in space, especially because they have to lunge out and grab prey. Then we have level two consciousness, the monkey consciousness, the consciousness of emotions, social hierarchies. Where are we in relationship to the tribe? As humans, we are at level three. We run simulations into the future. Animals apparently don't do this. They don't plan to hibernate. They don't plan the next day's agenda. They have no conception of tomorrow to the best of our ability, but that's what our brain does. Our brain is a prediction machine. And so when we look at the evolution from the reptilian brain to the mammalian brain to the prefrontal cortex, we realize that it's the process of understanding our position in space, with respect to others, that is emotions, and finally running simulations into the future. This description also fits with the idea of Morley Ponty, who stated that, quote, consciousness is in the first place, not a matter of I think that, but of I can, end quote. When you apply it to Kaku's theory, it would mean that the conscious agent is capable of creating higher amounts of feedback loops that include the individual's own consciousness, but also that of other living entities. They possess the sentience and awareness. This is actually the underlying tension I have come across during my research and experience. On one hand, while I'm awake, it feels as if the body and mind or the subject and object are divided. But on the other hand, especially in a meditative state of consciousness, these dualities seem to collapse. This is also the position I'm going to take in this thesis, namely that Cartesian dualism is almost like an illusion that we perceive as real at face value, and that consciousness can be conditionally looked upon as an invisible field of embodied knowledge and events that influence human behavior and their experience. Okay, the rest of the introduction talks about how the thesis is structured, so we'll end it right here. As you can see, it's complex and it's simple at the same time. Explaining these things is very difficult with science, and I think that the spiritual teachers fail miserably at it as well. But I'll continue with explaining what is Transcendental Meditation and what I've learned about it. I'm just gonna read a few outtakes from the upcoming chapters here and there. So, Transcendental Meditation, or TM, is this meditation technique created by this guy in India named Maharishi. He pioneered the movement and he founded the Global Transcendental Meditation Organization as well. I have no affiliations or connections with them, or other than my research. And the reason I chose this type of meditation was just coincidental, it was just a random meditation group I came across. They say that TM involves no beliefs, no religious ideas, no spiritual lifestyle or special powers, which I saw to be quite true. It's just a mental technique that you can use to induce certain brain states and altered states of consciousness with. 
and I must say that it's very effective. It's so simple but the speed at which you gain control over your mind and how easy it is is quite amazing. Basically you sit down to meditate and you repeat a mantra. A mantra is a two syllable word that doesn't have any magical significance or power to it. You can even gain the same effect by repeating any two syllable word like nature, I am, culture, or just make some random vowels like mm, um, mm, um, whatever, whatever floats your boat. The mantra is only a means of focusing on something while meditating. Once you start meditation, you begin to repeat the mantra over and over again. At first, you say it out loud, but then you gradually lower its volume in your head. The sound is traced backward even further in successively finer stages in the thinking process until the finest stage of thought is transcended and the mind is left in a state of what is called in TM literature as pure consciousness. Maharishi described pure consciousness as a state of non-dual awareness between the subject and the absolute being of existence. People use words such as separate, distinct, infinite, unbound, timeless and perfectly silent to explain this state. In my own experience, I want to add the aspect of stillness. That is what essentially happens. Your muscles relax and your thoughts settle. All right, to reach this pure state of consciousness, you have to gradually refine the mantra down to its finer form of vibration, which is achieved by bringing your full attention to the mantra and enclosing yourself from the perceptions in the environment as much as possible. When you're given the mantra, you receive it at its most material form, just a word. As you start repeating it out loud, you begin to focus your attention solely onto its sound. Eventually, you stop saying the mantra out loud and you repeat it only in your head. You refine it further until the mantra begins to fade away. It starts to lose its physical form completely. At that point, you don't even actually think about it or say it either. Its conceptual form, something you could get a hold of with your mind, it vanishes entirely and all that's left is only its vibrational frequency. This is when you've entered this state of pure consciousness where no effort is required to maintain a meditative state. It feels empty in the sense that you're not attached to any sensory or perceptual experience and you're simply dwelling there. But at the same time, it feels full in its bliss or blissfulness. The person kind of feels this sense of oneness with everything, which is quite contradicting in the sense of Cartesian dualism. So that's the reason I want to return to the idea of body-mind dualism again. One of the biggest problems with Descartes' dualism is that it takes the body and mind as separate entities, whereas there is evidence to prove them being very deeply linked. In cases of brain damage like a car accident, drug abuse or disease, the mental qualities of the person in harm are always influenced or compromised. In neuroscience, there's strong empirical evidence showing that cognitive processes have a physical basis in the brain and that mental activity influences the entire physiology and vice versa. The state of one's physiology has a profound effect on meditation. For instance, the food you eat 
influences the brain's cognitive processes and the position you sit in can hinder your concentration. That's why it's easier to meditate in between cozy blankets than on a hard chair. The more physical stimuli you have to focus on, the harder it is for you to enter a meditative state. That's why the mantra is so effective. You have only one single thing to think about. It's just like playing Jedi mind tricks to your mind. These aren't the droids you're looking for. As you refine the mantra to its finer form, eventually you cease to be about anything and become silent. This is the still and pure state of consciousness that in my own phenomenology does not imply towards being unconscious, but instead means that you exist with the world without any preceding thought or action and simply are there. It's the presence of non-dual awareness. It feels as if the body and mind merge or melt together with the environment, as the point of separation between the three becomes very hard to identify. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. This made me think about Cartesian dualism again. I looked it up and found that Descartes' infamous phrase has actually been taken out of context. Instead of saying just cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, the sentence was preceded by, quote, we cannot doubt of our existence while we doubt. In a more compact form it goes like this, dubito ergo cogito ergo sum, I can doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. It says that the only thing we can be sure of is that we exist. We can experience what is it like to be ourselves, and we're having conscious experiences. If we can doubt of our own existence, question our presence in the world, and recognize our own subjective experience, then we cannot deny that we are a subjective being inside a world. Although I would agree with that to a certain extent, that we are indeed individuals with our own experiences and sensory perceptions, this feeling disappears during deep meditation. In my opinion, the Cartesian divide almost happens just because we are self-conscious. Only because we are immersed in the world can we imagine ourselves existing separately from it. It's as if our analytical mind creates this distinction because we can identify successive experiences from one another in a feedback loop. In pure consciousness, there's nothing to be experienced. It's just pure and silent. It might feel as if one's body's boundaries begin to disappear. After I stop meditating, I slowly open my eyes. Then I experience a momentary shift in consciousness again. The body seems and feels foreign to me. This is the notion of re-emerging dualism I just talked about. It's not that there's a divide between the body and mind. It's just that I experience it while being self-conscious. When I'm in an ordinary state of waking consciousness, wherein I can doubt about my subjective existence. My regular meditation sessions alone usually begin with me getting into a comfortable position, taking a few deep breaths and starting to repeat a mantra. Nevertheless, it seems to be a cardinal rule that I still get random thoughts popping into my awareness. This monkey mind or squirrel cage, which is one of the best analogies I've ever heard. Sometimes they rob me of my attention completely and I follow them. Then I drop the thought 
and I start with a mantra again. Are you fellas? That's how you're building new neural pathways in your brain. You experience something like a distracted thought and then what you do afterwards is gonna create a habitual response. If you keep going down that rabbit hole and you start browsing social media, then you're gonna continue doing it in the future. If, however, you stay calm and relaxed, you say, these are not the droids you're looking for, hmm. Upgrade. and you guide your focus back to the mantra, then you're conditioning your brain to stay concentrated even when you're reading, while you're studying, working out, or even talking to someone else. That's the real power of playing Jedi mind tricks with your own mind. But how am I to know the good side from the bad? You will know when you are calm, at peace. What I talk about right now, it covered the first chapter of my thesis, which was also the most important chapter. The main message I think is that your body and mind are intertwined entities and that we experience this dichotomy or this sense of being something just because we're self-conscious. It's quite mind-boggling to think that evolution has led us down this rabbit hole where we develop self-awareness and BAM, we're instantly pulled out of the natural world around us on a phenomenological level. Monkeys aren't aware of evolution or the Milky Way galaxy or death, at least not that science knows of. However, our human consciousness has so many feedback loops that we can see ourselves in space and time in relation to other sentient beings. It's our highest stage of development right now, but at the same time, it can cause a lot of existential turmoil. We know the potential within us, but we're almost trapped by our own being inside the matrix. That's a topic for a whole nother episode. But that's it for this podcast right now. Don't worry, we'll continue on with some other easier topics in the future like ketosis, mindset, motivation, exercise, discipline and maybe some more meditation. If you want to support us, then definitely leave us a review if you already haven't. You can also share it with a friend. But thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.